My name is uh, Tom Wilson. Uh, I am the last man standing in the blue light. So I'm going to talk about the blue light and I'm going to talk about blues here on Talking Blues. I don't think that people get into this business, the creative business, for the right reasons, you know. Do you think you got into it for the right reasons? Yes, I do. Because uh, from the age, uh, from preschool, I always wanted to be a communicator. I always imagined myself as a painter or a songwriter or a minstrel, I guess. Okay. You know, a little more, uh, uh, some romantic... Uh, frills and fringes, you know, on, on those things, on those monikers as a kid. Can I ask you where that came from? Like, how did you want to become a musician or a painter or a storyteller? Well, Bunny Wilson always want, talked about, you know, if she lived again, she'd want to be a ballerina. Bunny Wilson was, uh, uh, she was kind of... Uh, given the job of taking care of her husband, George, who was blinded in the Second World War. So she had a bit of a chip on her shoulder, perhaps, that she didn't take advantage um, of the world around her the way she wanted to, or maybe the opportunities weren't there for her. She started work in the Sun Life building when she was 14 years old, going to work to make money for her family. And uh, she, was, uh, she had the temperament of a scalded cat, she would go to mass, you know, as a 14-year-old. She'd go to mass in the afternoon, you know, uh, and, uh, and then she would, you know, be uh, knocking the secret knocks on the doors of speakeasies at night in Montreal. She was a very interesting gal, and I think she had to grow up fast. And I don't think that the, uh, I don't think the opportunity was there for her to become the ballerina that she wanted to be or the great singer that she wanted to be. So that was always stifled. And she brought a romance uh, to the idea of being an artist that I think was, was something that I caught, latched on to as a kid, you know, listening to Nat King Cole and Ray Charles records and, you know, uh, uh, opera. You know, she had a little record player that she had a few records. Um, I could probably name them all. But um, uh, so that uh, uh, there was something that she handed over to me that kind of taught me how special it was to be a communicator like that. So that's uh, I, I took that on that. And then I saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. And there was all these girls screaming at them. And even as a four-year-old, I thought, yeah, that's what I want. I want girls screaming at me for the right reasons, not the wrong <laughs> reasons. Um, it's funny because I, uh, I always thought that I was very special seeing the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. I thought, wow, that's, that's why I'm, you know, one of the reasons why I actually picked up the guitar or wanted to play music in that part of the the dream of being a communicator, an artist, a visual artist, a writer, you know, as a, as a child, it was, you know, music, you know, was, you know, the Beatles really kind of were 
showing off there on TV, and I don't mind showing off either. But I thought I was the only one that ever that was inspired by that until I grew up and ran into other musicians. And it was like, I think everybody with a guitar that I ran into who saw the Beatles on on the Ed Sullivan show went to the, the same thing I did was ran to the kitchen and grabbed a broom and started, you know, playing along with them. What's amazing to me in the 160 plus episodes that I've done on this podcast, plus all the other interviews I've done, um, how many times that has come up as the reason why they play guitar. More yeah. so the guitar. I mean, I think there's been one or two people who say they picked up the bass or drums, but it, it was the guitar and all. So many people say that Ed Sullivan show that night changed their lives. Yeah, it's so true. Tell me what that meant to you, that moment. Well, it um, the same way Ramblin' Rose, in the same way I Can't Stop Loving You, uh, and uh, uh, the same way, what was that guy, Spike Lee, uh, did, he used to take great old songs and have a bunch of sound effects. Right. He did one called... Uh, uh, Cocktails for Two. It started off with him singing, In some secluded rendezvous That looks upon the avenue. Anyways, those melodies were really strong to me. And the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show, I didn't know the songs they were singing, but the melodies were really strong to me. And uh, they made sense to me as a four-year-old, which is... Um, a great testament to art itself and the way that I think about art is that uh, if it makes sense to a four-year-old, then you're doing the right thing. So you, you see this and you say, I, w- I want to do that? Could, would I be correct to say that that's that moment you said, I want to do that one day or? Oh, fuck yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, what I mean for... For if you know, okay, let's just. They captured my imagination. They opened the door to possibilities. They sang melodies that were so important and so simple that as a four year old child, I caught on to it. And that was the thing that made me say, I could do that. I'm 60 years old, I turned 60 on Sunday. And that's exactly, thank you. That's exactly what I'm trying to do now. You know, 56 years later, I'm trying to make art that opens the door to possibilities for the next person coming along who hasn't thought that they can do it. It's important for me to do that because I believe that it really is the job as artists or people if I may be allowed to say, who are attempting to be artists in this lifetime. Because if you walk around saying you're an artist, you've kind of already failed. If you have to pronounce yourself and present yourself always as Tom Wilson, musician, you know. But did you always feel that way? Pardon me? Did you always feel that way? Like when you Oh, that's were- developed over, over, you know, 45 years of writing music, you know. Um, that's developed over uh, being able to uh, uh, look over your work as you're doing it and, and realize what's making you do it is the fact that somebody pushed you through that doorway to be able to get there. 
So when I uh, when I write songs or uh, paint canvases, if somebody walks up and said, looks at my art and says, <laughs> I could do that, then that, and I've done exactly what I'm supposed to have done, which is make it possible, even if it's even if it's a diss of my creation. I don't care. When did the painting start, or the art? Start? Uh, 97, 1997, the second time I stopped drinking. Um, I, I was writing a record for Junk House with Colin Cripps uh, called Fuzz. And, uh, Great album, by the way. Oh, thanks. I've, I've forgotten about it, and I think a lot of other people have. It sold hundreds of copies. No, I'm joking. <laughs> um, it sold a lot yeah. back in the day when you could sell records. I started painting because I wanted to do something productive rather destru than destructive. And, you know, I, we worked, we worked, uh, uh, kind of, we were kind of regimented, a uh, little schedule of starting at noon and finishing at uh, about five or six, you know, having some dinner and splitting. And so I'd have those nighttime, my kids would be running around the house and I'd have those nighttimes where I'd usually start drinking. And I decided to stop in that, during that time and and started painting to kind of make up for uh the destructive behavior i decided to be productive and i started painting and uh people would come by uh and this is 1997 and uh they you know uh, come by and they'd want me to sign cds for uh for their for their charities right remember a woman's shelter who uh, was running out of money to feed uh to feed uh, the victims of violence that were living there, came by and said, would you sign some of our CDs for our, for our auction to raise money for this women's shelter? I said, yeah, was, sure, you, you want a painting? <laughs> He'd say, yeah, yeah, we'd love a painting. So I was giving away these, you know, four-foot, five-foot canvases, just handing them to them. They were walking out the door because I was painting them. I wasn't... You know, I didn't know what I was going to do with them. What were you painting? What were what was it when you first started? Uh, eye, mouth, nose, um, profiles, uh, in really simple lines. Like if I could do it in, if I could do it in nine lines, and then color it in, then I, I thought that was the right thing to do. I wasn't really thinking out the number of lines I was using. <laughs> Um, but I'm still using the same technique. Um, I wanted to paint images that if you were uh, a block away from me and I was holding up the canvas, you'd be able to say, I, I know exactly what that is. That's a moon and that's an eye. I see a mouth, that's a face, obviously, and a moon and a sky. And I also wanted it that a three-year-old child would be able to look at it and say, uh, oh, that's a face and that's a moon. You know what I mean? I wanted simple images. I also wanted it that, you know, some asshole looking at it, you know, would say, I could do that. And that he would somehow get it too. Was that like from the very beginning, that was the goal? That was what you pursued? Yep. Or did it evolve? No. Uh, oh, it has evolved. It has evolved since, uh, you know, I've discovered my identity, <laughs> uh, which I'm sure you can interview me into yes. uh, in, in, a, in, in a more uh, finessed way than I can be just blurting shit out. <laughs> but it's coming. There's an edit. There's an edit right there. 
So what was the question again? Was it the same? Well, you know, when you, you decide you want to paint, yeah. Um, and I don't know if you've done any painting before this, but did it come easy to you? And, and you said you had this idea of what you wanted to be. Did, did we able to achieve that very quickly or did that evolve over time? No, I, I knew that I wanted it to be simple and I knew what my limitations were and I've worked within my limitations my entire life. Uh, uh, I'm not, I'm not a, a visual artist, but I love to paint. Um, I'm dyslexic and I have a hard time reading, uh, but I seem to be able to write books. Uh, I'm not much of a musician, but I like to write songs and, and play guitar. It's that simple. Um, <laughs> well, I might disagree about not being much yeah. of a musician. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the fact that you write songs, and you started this really early. Yeah, right? about 14, 15, yeah. Tell me what motivated, how did you begin to write songs? Oh, being told that I was playing uh, uh, Tell Me Why by Neil Young wrong and, uh, and uh, being told that I was playing Carefree Highway by Gordon Lightfoot uh, with the wrong chords. And it was just like, well, I don't, I don't I, if this is how it's going to go, then I'm just going to write my own songs. And when I get the chords wrong, uh, only uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the only one that cares. And if I get the lyrics wrong, then uh, they're my lyrics, so I can do whatever I want. Basically, uh, it, it catapulted me out of trying to recreate other people's work and, and starting to develop my own. Uh, that, that's, kind of a, that's kind of a grand statement, um, so it didn't really apply to me as a 14-year-old, but looking back, that's what it was. At what point were you happy with your songwriting? Like, at what point did you think, oh, that's not bad? Well, I'm still trying to get there, you know. But you've uh, written some great songs. Do you still feel that way? Like, is it still just this unattainable thing? Huh. I, uh... Yeah, it's an unattainable thing. That's a very good way to put it. I had to, uh... I have to resign myself to what that, that line of yours. Because, um... My belief of, of saying that you're an artist is, is foolish. You should always work. Hopefully they'll be throwing dirt on my grave, you know, and that's when I'll stop trying, right. working, try, trying, working to be an artist. So uh, I, I, I've never, uh, you know, I mean, uh, I've never really been too concerned. More recently, you know, about uh, having to play old hits, you know what I mean? Uh, I don't... Uh, you know, I, 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 with all respect to all the uh, April wines and, uh, you know, all the uh, tea parties, I'm t talking about bands from my era, you know, or, or any of those, any of those really great bands that wrote great songs that were on the radio. You know, I don't care about the songs that were on the radio. I care more about the song that's in my head right now. And, and that doesn't, you know, I'm not trying to be holier than thou, but uh, my job as uh, my job is working to be an artist does not include having to sit back and play shine for the rest of my life. I haven't played shine in a show. Well, I did it, you know, once this year, but that's not bad considering it was a pretty, you know, it was a pretty popular song. Right. Okay. So tell me about that because I mean, if I was a writer and I was hoping to write a song, I would think that getting a hit is a big milestone. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I, and I know it's not always that. And I know sometimes somebody gets a hit and they're not really crazy about that song or whatever. But tell me about you know, your relationship to your songs. Tell me. Well, I'm play, I played them all uh, a lot. I mean, the thing about getting, you know, a hit on the radio, I mean, out of my head was everywhere we went in the world, it was, except for the estates, America, because it's not a big music country. Uh, <laughs> um, it's uh, everywhere we went in the world, you know, out of my head, I'd get into my hotel room in Leuven, Belgium, you know, or, or Munich and uh, turn on the TV and, uh, you know, the video was on MTV at the time. Uh, you know, so everywhere I went, it was like going right out, right. And then I'd, you know, leave my hotel room and I'd go to my show and I'd play that song. And I played that song on the road for two years. And I played that song, you know, I played it off and on for almost 30 years. Well, getting into 27, 28 years, right? Um, so, uh, you know, uh, I kind of kind of done that. unless Unless I get the the urge to want to play that song, uh, then uh, then I don't really need to do it. I've, I've played it enough. So you have success like that, where, where you have recognizable songs that people know, people react to, versus other songs that you've written that might be more meaningful to you. Does it surprise mm-hmm. you that one thing is being heard a lot more than this other song that you wrote that you really love, that you're really connected to, that doesn't get any attention at all? No, because Out of My Head was a blues song. Out of my head was two chords. Um, out of my head was a, a chant. Um, you know, before uh, bands like, I don't know, like the Strumbellas came along and started, you know, having these kind of almost like football chant choruses, you know. Right. I've heard a lot of those too, and I can't name all the, the groups or the songs that have these football chant choruses. Right. I mean, that's what it was. It was like, going right out, right out of my head, going right out. Like, you know, it was like this guttural, you know, animal chant, you know. It was a song that, you know, when uh, Columbia Records took us to an Australian football game in, in, in Melbourne, you know, and we were in that giant stadium. It's like that was the song that went on between plays. Going right out, right out. Okay, so how did that make you feel? Oh, great. I felt great. There's nothing about my work that I'm angry about or bitter about. It's just that the challenge for me is to get on a stage now and do an entire evening, 60 to 70 to 90 minutes, you know, sometimes without picking up an instrument by, uh, by the words that I'm reading and the things that I'm saying uh, being the only uh, tool that I have to, to resonate with people. Um, that's a, an interesting challenge that I never thought I would be taking on, but now I revel in it. I revel in the opportunity to be able to uh, tell stories to people and, uh, and read from my book and read what I'm writing right now from pieces of paper and nobody say hey play out of my head man you know like that's what a relief right and there was also a time in junk house where i was trying to write things that were more important the second record called birthday boy um i did uh recorded a song a duet with sarah mclaughlin called burned out car and we wanted that song to um bring awareness to the fact that there was people living under the Gardner Expressway and there was people with mental health problems in the streets in the middle of winter in Canada. 
uh, that was what that purpose was. And we'd go, we junk house would go out and play that song, and it was a you know very important moment for us in the show to be able to sing that song, and people would still be moshing and throwing fists at each other and yelling out of my head, you know, and I knew that I wasn't connecting with the audience that Junk House had, had cultivated. And uh, luckily, a Blacking the Rodeo Kings came along, and that was a, it was a, a little more of a, a listening audience, more of a, I guess, a folky kind of audience, a blues and roots kind of audience. So um, I was able to then write songs that were, uh, were to be heard. I guess. You know, I mean, I was actually freaked out the first time at Blackie the Rodeo Kings. We played the Edmonton Folk Festival. It was on the side of a ski hill in Edmonton. It's, I think, about 12,000 people. And I was doing a song by Willie P. Bennett called Has Anyone Seen My Baby Here Tonight, which is dead-ass quiet. It would be like you'd be able to hear and enjoy the song right. in this room right now. But if you got six your buddies hanging out here, it would get lost, right? You know, be like, rah, 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 people talking, right? But I was playing the song and 12,000 people were listening. It was dead quiet out there. And it kind of freaked me out that what I'd been trying, wanting to do with my life since a four-year-old, which was have people, you know, open up and allow themselves to resonate with what I was doing, was there, and uh, uh, that was the first time I, I had experienced that. Wow! So the success that you had with Junk House, and I would presume it was a successful band. Yeah, oh yeah. I mean, it fought a lot. There was a lot of uh, <laughs> there was a lot of uh, uh, there was a lot of trouble in that band. Was that trouble because of the success, or was it trouble just because of the personalities involved? Oh no, we were just trouble. I mean, I was the only guy that didn't have a criminal record when we signed. We signed our. Our, our international deal, you know, we, we, you know, suddenly all I thought was, uh-oh, because we can't go to the States. We're never getting to Japan, you know, because the band was, except for me, you know, who looked like, you know, the leader of the pack, you know, the band was, uh, had done time for uh, drugs and breaking and entering and assault and uh, stolen goods, um, uh also, uh, you know, breaking and entering, uh, 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 armed robbery, you know, everybody in the band had done some, uh, had touched, uh, either done time or, you know, had some kind of record for, for that kind of uh, activity. Um, so it was a band of survivors because I don't necessarily see criminal activity as, a, uh, you know, it's, as, as the worst thing. Right. Um, in the world, you know, sometimes people are just trying to survive. I don't like people hurting each other. I don't like people taking advantage uh, of, of one another. But I do understand survival. And that's a band that understood survival. So by the time that we actually got a record deal, we were still dressing in, you know, we were we were going to gigs uh, in, in the same same clothes that we went to work in that day, you know. We were not, you know, there was there was there was a lot of bands on Queen Street, you know, dressing down and trying to look rock and roll or whatever. But we were just who we were, which was a bunch of knuckleheads from Hamilton, you know. Okay, so 
Before this, you, you had another band, the Florida Razors. Uh-huh. Um, if we just go back to you as a youth, being wanting to become an artist or a musician, traveling up and down the 401 from Detroit to Montreal, whatever, playing yeah. every gig. Yeah, um, Was the goal to be what Junk House became, or was that not even the goal? It was, that was just a, that was a dream uh, that I didn't dare to dream. Uh, in my mind, uh, uh, I was kind of a 401 band, as you said, from Detroit to Montreal and turn around and go back again. I didn't, I couldn't imagine, I tried really hard um, to, uh, to become a popular band, but there's just no way they could, they could make anyone could make because we almost had record deals and stuff, which was a goal back then. Right, you know, being an independent artist wasn't wasn't that cool a thing in nineteen really in nineteen seventy eight, seventy nine, eighty. Whenever the Florida Razors were, you know, I mean, it was uh, it was much cooler to you know have a record company and and have them be able to get you on the radio. And uh, but we didn't. We, once again, it was a band of survivors in their own way and uh everywhere we played people really liked us but um nobody nobody in the music industry could really see a way to um they didn't see any mass appeal in what we were doing you know and and so when you got the record deal with junk house were you surprised by that no i'd worked really hard on that um we do we we put junk house in a in a bar called the gown and gavel which i also operated a restaurant on the third floor of called Moondog's Record Bar, which we sold drugs out of. It was a front, really, um, for uh, other other activities. Um, but downstairs on the second floor, Junk House would play every Wednesday. And uh, we, we would work every Wednesday, bringing in new songs, playing old songs, figuring out what, not even, not even, consciously figuring out what the band was supposed to sound like we didn't have an idea we just knew that these songs uh the idea of taking folk songs from the kitchen table and putting electric guitars and drums and bass behind them was an interesting thing to us um junk house was formed after i came back from new orleans from uh, living down in Daniel Lanois studio for a while. So, so Junk House was put together after that. Junk House was put together because I went to New Orleans and uh, instead of, you know, being uh, told that what I was doing was, you know, not interesting or enough or uh, what, what, what people wanted to hear, suddenly, you know, people were asking my opinion, you know. They'd be mixing Bob Dylan's Oh Mercy record and... And, uh, you know, Malcolm Byrne, somebody would say, what do you, what do you think of that, Tom? So why do you think that was? Uh, because um, Canada is, is fearful. <laughs> to put it as mildly as I can, it's a very fearful place back then. You know, people wanted to, uh, the industry wanted to imitate rather than um, cultivate, right. you know. And I guess maybe that's still the case. I, I don't know. I don't know what the industry is anymore. Um, so uh, we, would, we would go and rehearse these songs, uh, I think, with a certain amount of bravery. 
uh, undefined, just banging it out. And then we would take those Wednesday night gigs down the road to Toronto and planted ourselves on Queen Street in the X-Ray's ultrasound bar and the horseshoe and a little bit in the Cameron house, not too much, uh, but mostly ultrasound and the horseshoe. And we just went there and it didn't matter who we were opening for. It didn't matter what time of day the show was at. We did a month of Sunday afternoons in the middle of the summer. Nobody showed up. We were exhausted. It was hot. There's no air conditioning. Banging it out. And, um, still trying to maintain this idea that I brought from New Orleans of songwriting. I'd been hanging around with Lanois. I had watched him singing Still Water, you know, and, and uh, Jolie Louise, uh, you know, and uh, um, Under a Stormy Sky. And it was like, wow, this is like, this is exactly what I want to do. And then the Cowboy Junkies had the Trinity sessions where it was, uh, you know, music without ego you know it was mm -hmm. all about the song and it was about this meditation that could go on in the performance of songs i like that a lot and i was always in love with two records uh which uh, outside of those artists which was a muddy waters uh, folk singer which is all acoustic buddy guy and guitar you know willie dixon on upright bass and the sound of that record is so big and spacious and yet you know the points of light that come out of it you know just will sizzle right through your brain they're so important that and miles davis kind of blue which was all tonal and also meditative but seemed to be probably still to this day the greatest record that i'll i'll, I'll ever hear in my life a lot of people feel the same way. It's kind of like my Ed Sullivan show uh, a thing. Yeah, I, yeah. I saw the Beatles in the Ed Sullivan show and I started to play music. It's like, yeah, so did everybody else. <laughs> my, uh, Miles Davis' Kind of Blue is the greatest record that I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, also millions and millions of people feel the same way. <laughs> Sit down, Tom, relax. But, but when I read that in your book, which comes at the very end, and you mentioned those two records as the greatest records of your time. Yeah. Um, it surprised me, and I don't know why. I mean, it, it doesn't surprise me because they're both great albums and they're, they're classics, but it kind of surprised me that those are the two you chose because that's not the image that you portray. No, but I mean, you know, I also, you know, I've also uh, been pawned off as a, a working class uh, roughneck Irish guy, and I've actually been, you know, uh, more of a sensitive Mohawk my entire life without knowing it. So, you know, uh, um, this is this is the whole, you know, I don't even see it as a problem anymore, but it was always that I was, uh, I, I started to get in trouble the minute I walked through the doors of a school, you know. I was always the guy that, uh, you know, I was kind of always, always the guy that uh, didn't really belong. Maybe that's just how I felt. By the way, folks, this is not a sob story. This is just uh, uh, the way it went, you know. Mm -hmm. And I mean, uh, you're you're giving an example of not expecting this from me. I, I'm really interested to find out what the guy who likes those two records, Miles Davis, Kind of Blue, and Muddy Waters, Folk Singer, what does that guy actually look like? <laughs> I want to know. <laughs> okay, maybe that's not fair. I, I just don't know why, but it just took me by surprise. I don't disagree with the idea that those are two great albums, and I totally agree. Yeah. But it just, for some reason, 
And you mentioned so many other people who have influenced you, like Gordon Lightfoot, like Neil Young, uh-huh. uh, you know, and Bob Dylan. And, and so for, for some reason, because of that, maybe more so than anything else that it took me. Well, also, sense. you know, my step into uh, whatever spotlight there is, you know, or my, my step into your consciousness probably came with Junk House, right. you know. Right. So um, the road getting there was, was, was not a direct road. We took, I took all those influences and those records and those artists, Cowboy Junkies, Daniel Lanois, Muddy Waters, Miles Davis, and I sat at my kitchen table with Ray Ferrugia, my friend and the drummer, and I said, this is what I want to do. And he says, let's put together a band. Ray Ferrugia said, let's put together a band that's a vehicle for your songwriting because I'm a big fan of your songwriting. I thought, okay, that's a good idea. So that's how we put Junk House together. And we were, you know, moody, and we had Dan Aiken on guitar, you know, setting this incredible layer of ambient tone. And I was on acoustic guitar the whole time. And we took it down to Toronto and took it, and nobody really got it, right? And it wasn't until we started, you know, kind of taking too many pills and drinking too much and fighting on stage and turning up our amps really loud that people said, hey, there's something going on here, you know? And that's, and then we went to make a record. And, um, and that's where uh, I learned to kind of take a lot of the chords out of the songs, you know? To kind of simplify what I was doing, I realized that the band had gotten louder, not more aggressive, because I was still writing the songs. Those songs are not overly aggressive. They're not like head-banging songs. Um, So uh, I realized that the band had gotten louder, so writing a song with six chords and a melody that kind of swims around those six chords is not going to translate but if I take two chords and I play them over and over again and I find melodies inside that and the chant you know then I wasn't straying too far away from kind of blue by Miles Davis in in technique I didn't think and I wasn't straying too far away from Muddy Waters blues right mm-hmm. and uh that's kind of what junk house became but the because of whatever mtv or much music or or rock radio you know uh we became a, a rock and roll band you know and uh so i i'm happy with all the work that we did i i love that band but um it, it was uh it was misunderstood i think uh when you have that kind of success and you're touring all over the world, how does that affect you? How does that change you? Or does it? Well, like I said, we were a bunch of Hamilton guys. We are a bunch of knuckleheads who didn't expect any of this, you know? They were sending planes for us and flying us around on, you know, sometimes we were on private jets. Sometimes we were just get a call and, I mean, I think I put it in my book, but I mean, it's just as an example, you know, it's like, hey, you know, um, we need you to get on a plane uh, on, on Thursday. Uh, we're flying you guys to Scotland. You know, uh, we got this show. It's going on in a castle. There's two other acts. The act before you is, is called uh, Jeff Buckley. And the band after you is called Oasis. And it's like, okay, fine, whatever. We get on, you know, we go and go to this castle, you know, in 
Dunblane, Stackus, Dunblane, some castle called Stackus, I think. Anyways, we go and do that, and uh, we didn't expect that. You know, we didn't expect, um, uh, you know, that kind of uh, highbrow rock and roll music kind of lifestyle, you know. But it, I don't think that it really it didn't affect us. It wasn't like we started wearing boas and, uh, you know, talking any differently. We're, we're still the same guys, which I think is what people liked about us. Right. I'd like to think that, you know, I'm no different talking into this microphone than I am talking in a microphone at Massey Hall or, you know, or the Corktown Bar in Hamilton or wherever it is that I am. I'd like to think that, you know staying being the same person you know on stage as i am hanging around with you is 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 the right thing and that's what junk house was right. the, the same guys that we were were out drinking after the show and the same guy you know it wasn't like uh we changed we uh and that like i say that's what that's what the record company liked about us that's what the people who bought our records and came to our shows liked about us it was but our once honesty you, once you have a hit or two hits or whatever do you? Does it make you want to achieve that again? Is it like? Well, for some people, it does. I was still, I was still, uh, and I still am into creating music that I can sing around your 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 kitchen table here. So, um, uh, my I, I never thought of my job as trying to write hits, you know, or trying to compete with people who have hits because that's. That's a, that's a silly game to be playing. Unless you're, you know, fabulously good at it. <laughs> and I'm not going to sit here and say I haven't tried, you know? And I mean, I've been through, I've been through writing songs like for Josh, Josh Groban. He's, he's pretty, he was, I don't know, he probably still is, yeah, you yeah. know, pretty famous and popular, sells a lot of records. And it's like I, you're writing the song, you know, and sending it to the publisher and the publisher saying, oh, my God, this is it. This is the song. This is what we've been looking for for this record. This is going to be huge. And me thinking, holy shit, this is, this is great. Okay, this is going to be great. And then, you know, waiting, you know, you kind of got that in the back of your mind. A couple weeks later, it's like, it's not the song. <laughs> we were wrong. Josh heard a word in it, or the producer heard a word in it that he didn't like, and, you know, they, they passed it by. And So, you know, it's, it's an appreciation, I will tell you, tr a try working in that, in that form for the Elton Johns of the world, you know. And there's not only, actually, there's only one Elton John in the world, you know. Right. But that, that level of songwriting that can be, have a lot of earth, and gravel and you know a lot of dirt in it in the in that writing and being able to be massively popular and considered pop music that's a hard job that, that that's a hard job but songwriting is a big part of your life uh -huh. it is something you do you've worked with a lot of different people you've seen Cab Mo written with Colin James a bunch of people yeah um it's how has that evolved well I'm I've, I've slowed down quite a bit. I've done a lot of co-writing in my life. Um, my co-writing, you know, kind of started with 
briefly with Daniel Lanois, New Orleans, where he asked me to, you know, finish finish up this song here with me. Was that easy? Yeah. Yeah, it's just about kind of being yourself, you know. Um, being yourself uh, is, is, for a lot of people, is the hardest thing right. in the world for them to do. You know, um, I, I kind of find, I, I, I think I find it easier just to be myself, I guess. I don't know. It's not because I'm not as fearful as the next person. But so, so bringing, bringing yourself openly to the table is important. Colin James asked me to write with him in 1994, 1995, 94 maybe. It was after Out of My Head was out. Right. And he came, we were doing uh, the Q107 Rock Awards uh, at some stars, I don't know, some giant bar somewhere in Brampton or Mississauga or something. That's I, very sketchy on on the details. Um, but I, we were in the dressing room, Colin James came by, and Dano, the guitar player, was friends with Colin James, and he came in, he started talking to me, and he said, he says, you know what? I hear your song out of my head on the radio all the time. It's the only thing I like. And you want to know why I like it? And I said, yeah, tell me. I want to know why you like it. He said, because if Howlin' Wolf was alive and making records right now, that's exactly what Howlin' Wolf would sound like, like out of my head. And I thought, oh, my God, somebody gets what I'm doing. You know what I mean? One person gets what I'm doing with out of my head, and it's Colin James. Right. He gets the fact that this isn't a rock and roll song. This is a song that comes from the blues. It comes from folk music. It comes from the roots. It comes from the what they call Americana now. So he asked me to start writing with him in that, and we started writing together. And, and uh, you know, that was kind of my first major co-writing situation where uh, a song ended up, Mavis Staples ended up singing on that song, Freedom, that we wrote together. And uh, and also, it became, you know, uh, it's a really good song. It's a great How's that? song. I think it's a good song. And, and writing with Colin James was like, you know, I flew out to uh, BC and uh, he picked me up at the airport. We went to his, he was living in Lions Bay at the time on the side of a mountain. And we'd walk his dog, and uh, you know, we'd get in his little boat, and uh, then we'd uh, make some sandwiches, and we did everything except songwriting. He was busy doing all kinds of other stuff, cutting the lawn, and you know, <laughs> complaining about some construction he had on his house. And but the one thing uh, that I recognized immediately about Colin was just what an incredible communicator he was. That when he sat and sang guitar, how amazing it was and, and I realized why he sold you know so many records and was at that time and still is as popular as he is and uh, I started to write freedom and I kind of handed him the words and I said this is how it goes you know try this out and he started singing it and we were kind of knee to knee you know sitting in chairs knee to knee and he was right there it's like holy shit this is it was a good idea in my head but it is a fantastic thing coming out of him you know? so who brought in mavis how did that happen oh i think that uh probably some producer someone to do with lenny kravitz or somebody you know uh she came in and, and i guess liked the song you know i'd, I'd heard although i've never heard it that, that she recorded the song that she never put on a record but uh, you know it was you know uh 
I don't think I'll ever hear. If she did a version, I don't guess I'll never hear it. But anyways, uh, so that song, and it's a co-write with Colin, um, that's, that was me uh, being able, figuring out and recognizing the talent in the other person sitting across the table. And that was, that was really important. I mean, I wrote a song. I wrote a song. I don't remember. Oh, I wrote it with Colin James called Leave This House. I was sitting at his dining room table and he was doing something and I, wrote, I was writing the song and he sat down and he started singing it and we finished the song and, you know, he said, I, I don't know if I'm ever going to do anything with that. I said, well, I might. And then he started doing it with a little big band, Leave This House. And then, then Billy Ray Cyrus got a hold of it. Billy Ray Cyrus and uh, a guy named Adam Gregory, who was a Canadian, they did a duet of it. And I remember the record producer was, they, they were in Toronto recording it. And he called up, he goes, Hey, Billy Ray Cyrus is here recording, you know, doing a vocal on your song. He's recording the song. He kind of like to say hello, the guy who wrote the song. And I was at home in Hamilton watching the Leafs game or whatever I was doing, chasing my kids around. <laughs> and I figured, ah, you know, nah, I, I'm just staying home, but, you know, way to go. Thanks. I didn't think anything of it. I thought, uh, oh, Billy Ray Cyrus. <laughs> Anyways, they sent me what he had done on a cassette, and the guy nailed it to the wall, and it was a massive lesson to me. Just like I was talking about songwriting, how hard it is right. to write. Go, go and try to write Rocket Man. Go on, go on, go, uh, go write that. Let, let me know how you do with that. Right. It's the same thing with Billy Ray Cyrus. It made me respect if somebody sells 20 million records, they got to be doing something right. I don't care if they're auto-tuned. I don't care if they got a giant machine behind them selling their record. All that stuff that people don't like about popular music, go and try and do it. Because deep down, most of the people complaining about popular music wish they had that you know what i mean i'm a guy that never wishes that he had that but i sure can recognize when billy ray cyrus sings leave this house that i'm dealing with a mountain of talent singing that song and if you listen to his new song about you know taking my horse down to the old you know the song that's been banned by country music because right, it's right. too rap hey man my grandkids are running around the baseball park. They'll be in playing baseball tonight, running around the field, singing that song. So go try to do that. I'm not challenging anyone out there. <laughs> I'm just challenging, you know, the the person that says, ah, you know, it's crap. Well, you know what? If kids are singing it, kids know. So you've been writing all this time since you were 14. Um, a number of years ago, you decided to write a book. I didn't really decide. Okay. <laughs> okay. People talked you into it? Yeah. Or is yeah, it something you just had me. to do? I yeah. mean, I really, all, I mean, I'm a bit of a whore, right? All you got to do is ask me and, you know, <laughs> sure. But, okay, so tell me about that process. I know you're a storyteller. I know you've written tons of songs. But writing a book is a different thing. What was that experience like to, to sit down and write this book about your own life? Um, well, uh, first of all, uh, trying to uh, write, communicate with you, you know, in three verses and a chorus, you know, that's, that's one way to do it. But 
to be handed over the opportunity to tell you the same story or a series of stories in 70,000 to 130,000 words. Well, that's a luxury. It was for me, anyway, had the you thought of it. Had you done that kind of prose writing before? No, um, not, not extensively, no. Um, maybe I've been saving it up all my life. Maybe I was, you know, maybe I knew I was going to do this. Maybe the cosmos knew I was going to do this and kind of had me ready to go. I don't know. Did you feel like you were ready to go when you started? Shit, no. I, uh, I, I, I mean, going from songwriting to writing a book is like going from writing, driving a smart car to driving a, you know, Cadillac Escalade. That's right. how I like to put it. It's like driving in Toronto, writing songs, compared to driving across the prairies. It's like you're wide open. You got it all. It's all there for you to take in, you know. Um, I mean, I found out that uh, it, it, it all happened because seven years ago I found out that I was, my mom and dad weren't my mom and dad. And I was going on a speaking tour, and uh, the... Uh, handler they gave me was this woman they give you a handler to get you to the airport and get you to your hotel at the other end they travel with you and i get into this limousine in front of my car and i'm pulling away from my house and she goes oh this is great i'm a big fan of yours and you don't know this but your family and my family used to be friends and i said you know i hear that a lot but Bunny and George Wilson, my mom and dad, were really, really old, and George Wilson was blinded in the Second World War. He was a tail gunner in a Lancaster bomber, which was the suicide seat in the Second World War. He uh, was massive head injury, totally blind. Bunny Wilson, both really old. Bunny Wilson, temperament of a scalded cat. They didn't have any friends in Hamilton. And I explained all this to her. She goes, oh, no, 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 my... My grandmother was friends with Bunny Wilson. Her name was was uh, Mary Brennan. And I remembered her grandmother's name. I couldn't believe it. I remembered her grandmother's name from when I was a kid. And my heart, I've said this before, my heart broke open because I didn't think Bunny Wilson had any friends in Hamilton. And here I'm faced with this name from the past and this woman in the back of a limousine who's related to Mary Brennan. It's like, oh, my God, I remember your grandmother. This is so great. And she goes, yes, in fact, my grandmother was so close with Bunny, she was there the day you were adopted. And I said, what? <laughs> so that started this whole journey. This is where I'm at now. Right. And this is where I'll continue to be. So I'm... You know, out of that revelation, I, found, I grew up an only child. I've met six of my brothers and sisters. Uh, I grew up thinking I was a big, puffy, sweaty Irish guy. I'm actually a Mohawk. And I was driving my cousin Janie home from a family birthday party, one of my grandson's birthday parties. Janie is the matriarch of our family. She sits at the head of the table for... Christmas and Easter, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and she's not, it's not a family event without her. I'm driving her home, and I said, Janie, you know, I found out a little while ago that mom and dad weren't my mom and dad, and if you ever remember anything or feel like you can tell me anything, please do. And she turned to me and said, Tom, 
I'm sorry, I don't know how to tell you this, and I hope you forgive me, but I'm your mother. So that, those events changed my art completely. I went on CBC Radio and definitely not the opera and told this story, and a week later I got a call from, you know, through Dave Bedini, through Peng- I got a call from Penguin Random House saying, Tom, we heard you on CBC Radio. Have you ever thought about writing a book? And I said, fuck no. <laughs> Sounds like way too much work. So they said, well, will you come in for a meeting? So I said, yes, of course. I'm a musician. I don't do anything. I'll come in for a meeting. I got all the time in the world. So I go into Penguin Random House, and I, you know, it's February, and I walk in there with my big winter coat, and I go through the big glass doors, and I'm reception them in corporate offices for Penguin Random House books, and they take me down the hallway to this big boardroom with a big corporate boardroom table and they're feeding me coffee and donuts and I'm talking it's 10 in the morning and I'm talking I'm all pumped up now in caffeine and sugar and sweating and talking it's all of a sudden it's 12 noon I've talked for two hours and they say we've never met anyone like you before we'd like you to come and write a book for us at Penguin Random House Books and they sent uh, the contracts over to my lawyer and that was it. Suddenly I was writing a book. Was it a daunting task to think about? Yes, of course it is. It's a daunting task to, you know, think about walking over to, you know, Bayview to get a, everything's a daunting task at this age, right? We're ancient. So um, in, in saying that, the only writing I did for the first year of the book was signing my name on the advance check for the, you know, the money, right? It was like, get that money in the bank right now. <laughs> this is great. And then uh, events just kept occurring. Information just kept coming in. I kept making notes. I make notes on my, uh, same way I write songs now. I, I send myself text messages in capitals <laughs> so that I know that it's, uh, a, a, it's, it's a, a fuse right. that I should go in light later on. And... Um, I, I I didn't really write the book until after a Blackie and the Rodeo Kings tour where it was like, holy shit, I've really got to write this book. And I sat down at the end of April 2016, maybe. I don't know. Uh, it was April. And I wrote right through, I finished the book by the beginning of July. So it was like April to May to June. So it was about two and a half months uh, I actually wrote the book. And then... In the process of it, it's like it's like saying I just wrote a record. Well, then you got to record it, and then you got to, you know, mix it, and then you got to master it. So there's there's all that fine tuning that my editor Martha Kenya Forstner, you know, um, uh, that's when she got to actually work on the book after waiting for it for a while. Um, and uh, I found I can't say that I, I'm writing another book now. I can't say I find the process easy what's the new book can you talk about it or it's it's going to be called uh blood memory blood memory is uh personally blood memory is the fact that i started painting in 1997 as we talked about simple images my daughter said dad i don't know it kind of remind me of iroquois false faces you should be really careful since you're painting indigenous things and you know you're a white guy and I said I don't know this is just what I paint and then how do you how do you explain that blood memory 
that's it. It's something that lives in us. It lives in our whatever our ancestors, our culture, uh, the blood that runs through us. If we open up the gates to allow that to come through, it can guide us uh, artistically. For me, it can guide us. It can help us, hopefully, make wiser decisions. Uh, it's like a tap on the shoulder from the past. So this is blood memory in terms of you, and is your your life the main reference, or are you taking that well, concept? Well, no, it's it's the blood memory of uh, you know. Now I go to I, now I do literary festivals. Uh, as I said, I get to go and you know stand and read a book, and uh, my son-in-law says that I should have a skull in the other hand, you know. So, but I, I you know I go and I read my book. And uh, when I when I when I go do that, uh, it's funny because people from my reserve show up. Uh, the one of the, one of the chiefs of Ganawake, who turns out to be my nephew, <laughs> you know, shows up, and and a warrior shows up, and they say things to me that I've never heard before. They said, "We read your book. We don't like reading too many books. We're too busy, but we read your book, and you write." And you speak like a mohawk, the way you tell your stories, the way you express yourself is like a mohawk. And there's an umbilical cord that drew us back to the reserve. One guy was from Maine, but the reserve called him, Ganawake called him. And I feel that I'm being called back and I'm finding my way there. So the first book was about the long road home. This is, uh, let's just say I'm still on that road. So it's, um, it's, a, it's a little bit, I'm touching on the history of the people who grew up off the reserve. Uh, There's an area in Brooklyn, New York called Little Cognawaga, which was where all the migrant Mohawk workers, the men who built Skyscrapers. Skyscrapers yeah. lived. was in Little Cognawag. I think it, I'm not sure. I'm still doing. My sister's still giving me the details. She grew up there for a while. Ten blocks in Brooklyn. Where, you know, you know, you go through Brooklyn uh, back then. Maybe now. Maybe it's all gender. Maybe it's all white now. I don't know. But uh, back then, it was definitely Portuguese neighborhood, Italian neighborhood, Jewish neighborhood, black neighborhood. Puerto Rican neighborhood. There was all these cultural, you know, pots of stew, you know, all in, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten block radiuses. And Mohawks, the Indians, had a, had a, had their own neighborhood there. And you, there was Mohawk grocery stores, and there was bars, and there was places to shop, and then all the stuff was brought from back home. And uh, there was a whole... There was a school, you know. There was Mohawk spoken in the streets of New York City. So what was it like for those people growing up in Brooklyn, you know? What was the blood memory that they carried with them and still carry with them, you know? My cousin is in Staten Island, you know. They're, they're still Mohawks. And what do they bring to the table, you know, that they can't really identify because they grew up in Brooklyn, but there's something that the reserve has handed them, you know? So that's, it's all a lot of mystical, magical stuff, it sounds like, but uh, 
Um, and I wouldn't be writing about it if I didn't feel it firsthand. So the question I have, so well, we should mention that the previous book, the, the book that you first wrote, was called Beautiful Scars, mm-hmm. and it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful book. Um, I was, I guess I was struck by the fact that many times in your life, before you were, you, you knew the truth, people kind of thought that you might have had, that you weren't who you were. Yeah, right. And, and, but you, you, you had no reason to believe that. When it actually happened, and you said that you had been living a lie, mm-hmm. how do you, how do you process that? When, when all of a sudden you're told that you're not who you are, and then you become, you realize who you, you really are. And I'm not sure what that really means, because obviously um, Bunny and George played a huge life, they're, role they're, in their lives beautiful the most loving people i'll ever meet in my life yeah so they were, they were dysfunctional but who Still, isn't right. right and you know i'm not obviously the love of music came from them you know they yeah. had something to do yeah. with that in a big way um but when you're told this isn't who you are this is who you are then all of a sudden you have to kind of figure out who that is how difficult was that to to say oh my god who am i still going on i mean i I'm still now. I'm, I, coming to terms is not correct. That's not the right term. Uh, I'm still. Uh, I'm allowing my my culture. I'm allowing the voices of my ancestors to come through me. And as a result, I'll be closer to being a Mohawk. I'm still shaking hands with a culture that I've just been introduced to, okay? It's a very respectful question. Sometimes I just, people say, yeah, you don't look much like an Indian. (laughs) People also say, did you really write the book? Or did someone else write the book? And I'm getting too old to punch people in the throat. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I actually did just write the book. I sat down and write the book. You know, how do you do things? How do you write? So how do you, how do you, how do people create things? You know what? It's just hard work. And sometimes it doesn't work out, but it's just hard work. So, um, uh, well, also I'm asked, how does it feel to be a Mohawk, right? I found your question much more respectful. Also, I'm asked, you know, so uh, how, how Indian are you, you know, which is a colonial question. Right. Because when I, when my sister found out that I was her brother, she's, she's a tough gal. You do not mess with Mohawk women. You do not mess with women, right. really. That should be it. <laughs> but Mohawk women, you really don't mess with. Uh, she said, uh, uh, you know, people, people on the reserve, indigenous people that I've run into who've come to hear my story, I said, okay, so you're one of us. Great. Were they as, like, that welcoming? Like, was it immediate? It's, it's how easy it was. Okay, so but how do you feel? Because like, all of a sudden you're thinking, I'm not who I am. Um, and now, do you immediately, are you able to embrace this new person or... Well, how does it feel to be a Mohawk? First of all, is is is, is an it's a, it's an odd question, 
But it's one that I actually took home with me, you know, and thought about. And the fact that, you know, I come from seven generations of iron workers, you know, skywalkers, those mystical superheroes that, you know, built North America into the sky. Um, you know, I, I, can't, I can't become a Mohawk or define myself the way mm-hmm. they did to the world. Uh, my Uncle Walter, who I'm going to visit next week, he's very sick. He was one of the guys that put the antennas up on the World Trade Center. He worked for years building the World Trade Centers. When he, 9-11, he's sitting in front of his TV watching all those people die and watching those towers and his antenna go to the ground crying, you know. So how does it feel to be a Mohawk? You know, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know how that works. Um, that was known as his antenna, and he watched it go down. At the same time, my brother Kyle, who was working in New York, was one of the first of the first responders, one of the first of 200 Mohawks that moved into Ground Zero to clear debris so the firefighters could get in and do their jobs, right? He was down there clearing this debris, and he came across what looked like a rocket ship sideways, you know, it was lying in the debris. And he was staring at it, thinking, what is this rocket ship doing here? And he realized that it was Uncle Walter's antenna that he was staring at. And when he got a break from that work, he went back home, and he cleansed himself with tobacco water because he, was knew, he knew that he was carrying all the souls of those people that died there. You know, so, Tom, how does it feel to be a Mohawk? Well, I don't know how that feels. During the Oka crisis, you know, I was at home in Hamilton watching it on the national news, reading about it in the Globe and Mail, listening to it on the radio. I was, my blood was boiling and I didn't know why. I was in Barnsdale Boulevard in the safety of the east end of Hamilton, not the safest area of town, but feeling very safe. My brothers at the same time were sitting at their kitchen table filling out their wills and picking up weapons to go out into the woods to fight a war. A war that they didn't think they were coming home from. So how does it feel for me to be a Mohawk? The only way I am going to get closer to my culture is through my art, through bringing love and honor and generosity to my culture through my art, through my painting, through my writing, through my music, and exposing the beauty of what my people are. In doing that, hopefully, I can just make people recognize one another in this massive gap that we have massive gap of reconciliation and if I do this properly and in a loving way then maybe I'll be able to make a little bit of difference because this difference this 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 genocide and this cultural the white wiping out of indigenous culture and communities as it was attempted is not something that's going to be healed probably in my lifetime but I hopefully have 20 more years to keep creating art and writing music and writing books to help that along 
I don't think that we as a country can be pointing at each other and, and, and accusing and uh, using the same tones as, uh, you know, Twitter does to talk to each other. We have to be kinder and we have to be gentler. Do you feel like you know yourself better or less because of this? Like if you're born and you, you thought this is who I am and then you find out you're not. Oh, no, I'm, 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 I'm firm. I was firm on the ground. I got to tell you that when I found out that I was uh, uh, adopted, when I found out that I was actually a Mohawk and not an Irish guy, when I found out all this stuff, I was already surrounded by children and grandchildren. I was already defined. I was dad. I was, you know, gramps. I was already gramps. I already had people that loved me and accepted me on a level that's deeper than any other level that we can get, which is the blood-on-blood blood recognition of one another. I had grandchildren that recognized me through our blood. So I was pretty solid, you know? I was a pretty solid man. Finding this out really just cracked open a whole other world to me. And it gave my art after 53 years, now I'm 60. So after 60 years, now what I'm doing actually has intent. So I don't have to necessarily be, you know, tapping my finger on my cheek thinking, hmm, I wonder what I'll write about today. You know, it's all kind of been handed to me. It's the greatest gift. And it's something that uh, I have to be accepting of this gift and uh, I have to make the very best art that I can out of this. That way, I'm going to move closer to my culture. That way, I'm going to be doing the job that I feel I'm supposed to be doing on this planet. My final question to you is that young kid who wanted to be a storyteller, a musician, a communicator to who you are today. Tell mm -hmm. me, how do, you summarize, how do you look back on that journey? Well, that was a rough one. <laughs> that, was a, that was a rough journey for sure. Um, but, uh, you so know. I should mention that in your book, you're very honest. Yeah. Like you reveal yourself quite a bit, which is incredible. Yeah. And, and not, uh, well, I mean, uh, as much as I could. Yeah. I mean, was, but was I'm still telling the story. Yeah. You know? But I mean, you could have not said certain things. Or I, in some ways, I just thought you were kind of hard on yourself. Oh, hell. I don't, you know, uh, I was, I'm the last man standing in a, a, a lifetime of lie, right? I was lied to about who I was. Um, I was uh, taken away from my culture and my reserve. Um, I could be very bitter if I made that choice. I could be very angry if I made that choice. When I sat down to write this book, I sat down with a lot of blackness inside me. My heart was black. I was angry at Bunny and George Wilson and my mother, Jean Lazar. I was mad at people who knew that I was actually an Indian this whole time and that my parents, you know, <laughs> you know. But do you understand why? Like, can you justify their actions in any way? Well, you know, the simple, you know, well, it was a different time. <laughs> As I sat down to write, yes, I did. Because the answer isn't just why they did it, 
But the answer is inside who these people were. And as I sat down to write, I started to write with anger, and it turned into the love and the memory of Bunny and George Wilson, Mm. who threw down for me. These were older people. George Wilson was blind, and they brought a baby into their home and complicated what already was a devastating trail that they had been walking on. These people, I found the love for them that we all have for our mothers and fathers as children. When we're little, when we're like three, four years old, and the greatest fear is having those people taken away from us. What if something happened to our mother? What if something happened to our father? And that unbelievable love, that power that we have as children, I was able to find again. You know, uh, that, that in itself uh, is, is a gift because recognizing ourselves as children <laughs> is very important. It goes back to that love. It also goes back to the fact that we're all born artists. That what I'm trying to become in this lifetime is the child that I was. Mm-hmm. And anyone who writes music or plays music or paints or writes books or acts or whatever it is, you're all just trying to get back to the child that you were. Because when we're three years old, every one of us are singing and we're dancing and we're making up stories, you know, and we're free to act it out and we hit the doors of those schools and we get all that taken away from us. Not just, I'm not down, not beating up on schools, but the world takes that away from us. So what artists are trying to do is trying to get back there. I'm, I'm working now my entire life. I've been working to get back there. But what I was able to do, achieve really easily by writing this book, was to be able to raise that blackness, that, that sludge at the bottom of my leg all got loosened up and, and, and free. And I was able to recognize that love and feel that love that I had for Bunny and George Wilson as a kid. That's, that's man, that's a heavy gift. That's a good one. And it certainly comes through in the book. Thank you so much for doing this. It's such a pleasure to meet you. Oh, yeah, you too. And we've met before, so, yeah. you know, I mean, now, now I'll remember. <laughs> I hope so. Thank you. Thank you.